Hello, Digital Nibbles listeners. We know you've been anticipating the revisit of some of our most exciting episodes, and the time has come. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode we've pulled from the vault. I'm Allison. And I'm Rue. And this is Digital Nibbles. It's the 20th of March, 2013, and we're here for another edition of Digital Nibbles. My name is Allison Klein, and I'm here with Reuven Cohen. Hey, Reuven, how's it going? I'm doing great. It's been uh, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks since uh, last time we we've spoken. Uh, it's going to be a great show today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, we've got a, a very exciting celebrity guest. Why don't you tell the folks who's coming on the program today? We've we've got actually a really interesting guest, one that I'm particularly excited about, Harper Reid, who was the former CTO of the Obama campaign, and and actually he's kind of interesting because he he was kind of popularized this idea of kind of big data for campaigns, or, or not really popularized it, really was successful with it, I think, more than anything. So it should be a very interesting conversation. I've got a whole slew of questions I'm dying to ask. Me too. I'm I'm excited about it. And um, you know, it's been a it's been a good week in tech. Um I was in Paris this past week, um, working on some cloud um stuff, but uh working around the concept of uh application this this is taking it down into the weeds, I admit. Um applications in the cloud and how applications are, are managed from a licensing standpoint. That was that was my week. What did you do last week, Ruth? Well, besides, uh, I've actually been hanging around the house helping my wife with with the new arrival, but uh, mm-hmm. been been trying to trying to dust off the old blog. Uh, you know, I've been a little bit relaxed in my blogging efforts, so I've been sort of going into that a little bit more. Yesterday, I actually did a post on the supposed rumor of the CIA adopting cloud computing with Amazon. So supposedly, there's a $600 million deal that they've just signed, and we'll be using the Amazon cloud for a variety of things. I guess I'm going to call it the clandestine cloud. The dark cloud? Um, <laughs> uh, that was all over Twitter, and um, you know, it seems to be that everybody was focused on that. Um, other news that I saw... Um, it seemed like there was a lot of topics out uh, this past week that were things that we've talked about on the show before. Um, one was um, the fact that the God particle was confirmed. I don't know if you saw that. The Higgs uh, boson God particle, CERN announced that they had discovered that back in 2012. Now they've announced, yep, we've confirmed it. That was exactly what we found. Yeah, so we, we actually had, science we had this forward. conversation. Yeah, back back in July, yeah, last year, I thought they had already discovered it. Apparently, discovering it is just half the equation. The other part is actually confirming that it exists. Um, so apparently, we we discovered the other half of the mass of the universe, uh, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Also, another big story is uh, the Pope, and uh, he's he's out there already tweeting, and he's he's apparently Pope Francis is his name, and he's uh, the people's Pope. Uh, Big supporter of the poor, I'm told. So it's, I guess if, if you're one of the uh, billion-plus Catholics in the world, it's been a, a pretty big week for you as well. So is he going to be our first social pope, do you think? Well, wasn't the last guy? I think I think I remember a news story about the last pope actually tweeting. I, you know, the question is whether or not he's actually tweeting or one of his uh, handlers or whatever they have over there uh, in, in the Popeville uh, to do it for them. Popeville, that's nice, Ruth. Um <laughs> The other thing that's been going on last week, and and you and I must not be cool because we weren't there, um, is that South by Southwest has been going on, and it seems like um, hardware was a big theme at 
at South By, which is always an interesting thing, specifically 3D printers. Have you been following that? A little bit. You know, I find the whole aspect of 3D printing particularly interesting around sort of the idea of piracy. To me, you know, the bigger question is, you know, what do you make beyond, like, fancy iPad and and iPhone cases with these things? But uh, it's certainly an interesting market that seems to be heating up these days. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that you... You just give that tool to somebody that's really creative, and I'm sure something else plasticky can pop out of it. Um, not sure how, what the uh, the green footprint is on, on 3D printing, but I'm sure that it has a, a good path in terms of prototypes of products of all kinds. And, um, you know, just the, the idea of being able to program something into a computer and out pops your 3D image is just, I still think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, there's another story that, that came out in regards to uh, Kickstarter, which is a crowdfunding marketplace. And apparently there's a show that was popular about five, six years ago called Veronica Mars. I can't say that I was a big watcher of the show. But I think that was a got... CW show, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, that's we don't get that in Canada, but uh, mm-hmm. apparently there's a lot of a lot of people who do and appreciate the show. And I'm told that they were able to raise upwards of three million dollars within literally a few days. And uh, there's going to be a movie made of this particular show, which involves, uh, I, I guess, a detective that does detectivey things. On a side note, though, I actually got an email today from one of our former guests who was doing crowdfunding in the real estate space, and uh, the folks over at Re- Realty Mogul, and they've actually mm-hmm. launched their, their product today, so kind of an interesting side note there as well. So crowdsourcing definitely is fitting in with the theme of today's guest. Um, Veronica Mars, I, this this whole conversation right here would be more interesting if either one of us had seen the show. Um, but it really does speak to the, the power of, of uh, a mass of people to affect change within the new world uh, of social communications. And I think that's what's the most interesting about that. Um, the other interesting one was um, that seemed to really light people up was Google shutting down their reader. Um, it seems like no one used Reader until they decided to shut it down, and then everyone decided it was their favorite app. What do you think about that? I used to be a, good, a big Google Reader fan probably, I don't know, three, four years ago. And once the iPhone and later the iPad came into existence, I sort of switched over to, uh, I, I guess I usually use Flipboard for the mostly. And, and it, it kind of aggregates the news from various social feeds, my friends and things. I, I find it more in line with the types of way I interact. Um, you know, if I'm on the train or whatever, I pull out my phone and I flip through the Flipboard and get my news as I need um, I think Google Reader was good when it was needed, but RSS has kind of died. You know, it's not mm-hmm. needed any longer. I would agree with you. Um, I guess that's just, you know, a reflection of the speed of innovation because that was new not so long ago. In this day in history, 1916, Einstein published his general theory of relativity. Just to put things in perspective with Veronica Mars, I think that's a, a fairly large milestone for the world. And... Um, Go ahead. 1928 is, is my particular favorite. We had Mr. Fred Rogers, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers, who who was born. So I, I think that that's a big one. That's nice. And I, I would be remiss uh, uh, to um, the folks who do this research for us on, on a day in history to not mention the Legoland California opening in 1999 in Carlsbad, California, an important milestone for some. Um 
I would assume that 3D printer could also apply to, to Lego. That seems like a, a maybe a target market for them. Well, that, that sounds but, like a lawsuit wait, waiting to happen on that one. I actually have an interesting side note. You, you know what? I love throwing Canadians into this sort of news of, of the week and uh, sort of what happened on this day. I've got one that hits particularly close to home. My, my old man was actually born today, so it's his birthday. So, so ha- ha- happy birthday, Dad. You are so much better at mentioning family and friends on this show than I am, which which makes me just a uh, a very bad daughter. But um, yeah, I remember you talked about your mother a few months ago as well. Yeah, the the, uh, the, I, I, the geekiest mother on the planet. She's a, a big time web developer. She's actually working on a crowdsourcing website specifically for her neighborhood. So, uh, good luck with that one. But it's. Uh, always kicking up some interesting uh, plan. Sounds like a good um, future episode of Digital Nibbles, but uh, for now, what I'd like to suggest is that we take a break, because I know that we both have a lot of questions for Harper Reed, so let's leave as much of the program as as we've got for him. Let's take a break and come back with Harper in a couple minutes. And we're back with Harper Reed, former CTO of Obama for America. Welcome, Harper. Hello, everyone. So, Harper, um, have you been able to take a break since last November? Um, are you are you feeling human again? <laughs> um, probably more than ever, to tell you the truth. Um, I think that it's it's. I never really thought about breaks. I was never, you know, I I mean, my like probably many of the audience, my vacation is to sit in front of a computer and hack on something interesting and kind of just always working in technology. And so the idea of a break was always kind of fascinating for me um, just because I never really thought of it as a, you know, as a let's, let's take a break from computers or let's take a break break from, from all these things. And then um, with the campaign, what was really interesting is um, it was so intense that suddenly I was really thinking about what that meant and like, how did, how do I maximize for that? And so I actually, um, I was actually very, very deliberate in how I took a break, what that meant. And, um, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. You mentioned Carlsbad at Legoland. I actually went to a resort in Carlsbad right after the campaign by myself with no technology and just some books. I guess I had a Kindle, so that's sort of tech, and no phone. Um, and I, I just read for a week. And that's all I did. And it was it was beautiful. But that was, you know, that was pretty much the only kind of um, break I got. And, um, since then I've just been kind of screwing around. I have a small company when working with some friends and trying to figure out what's next. It's really interesting that, that, you know, you, you've hooked up with the Obama campaign. I am, we know a little bit about your background, sort of your work at Threadless, uh, which was kind of a early sort of pioneer in, in a kind of targeted online e-commerce environment. How, how do you go from that to the (laughs) CTO of the Obama campaign? In, like many things in this, you know, this kind of realm, it's never as satisfying as as one would like. It's not. I don't have like a real big like. Oh, and then I did this, and therefore, you know, I was able to be on the on the uh, what do you call it? Like the uh, the 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 eyes of these pe- of these kind of powerful people. What what had happened was um, a, a friend of mine, actually a Republican friend of mine, um, had made friends with the CTO of the Obama campaign from two thousand eight. 
And so this guy named Michael Slaby. And Michael Slaby is, is kind of exactly what you would expect of this kind of role, which is, you know, obviously very smart, um, wears a suit a lot, um, kind of like, where, you know, the kind of guy, maybe not a tie, but like if you said, oh, hey, can you wear a tie? He'd be like, oh, yeah, of course I can. In fact, I'm going to wear a very nice tie. And he always, you know, it's just kind of like um, not, you know, it's not it's not fair to say he's a bureaucrat, but he plays the part of like the the political type person. Um, and he, you know, he definitely looks at he's been involved for years. And um, and so he was in 2008, the CTO. And so, um, you know, when they were um, actually, this is something I actually do a lot of talking about. And I, I did a, a little bit of a TED talk at TED the other day. And this is one of the things I talked about is um, what the campaign realized. And this is just, you know, this goes right to the top. So, you know, this comes from Pluff and the president and all these like Axelrod, all these very intelligent people. What they realized is that, it's going to be a different game. And so they're going to need to hire someone that knew technology in a very real way. And Slaby, Michael Slaby, he was the guy who hired me. He kind of knew that this was, an, what, this was something they needed to do, but he didn't really understand, or he knew that he wasn't the right guy, I think is better said. It wasn't that he didn't understand. It was that he knew that he was more of a kind of, he's, he was someone that, he was a front-end developer, um, obviously, you know, a good manager. I'm very good at kind of that stuff, but he knew he needed a real engineer. And so I actually explained this to my wife kind of when I first got hired. She's like, what is going on? This is crazy. And, I, and then I explained it to her and she, she's um, from Japan and she said, oh, this is a very simple concept we have, which is, which is uh, mochi wa mochi ya, which means if you want mochi, go to the mochi store. So the idea that the campaign realized they needed engineers, so they basically had to go they needed engineering. They had to go to the engineers. And so although this was foreign to them and it wasn't really what their core competency was, they were very smart and innovative in realizing, hey, we need to hire analytics people. We need to hire engineers. We need to hire PhDs to kind of solve this problem. And we're going to start by hiring. Um, they hired me and then they hired another guy named Dan Wagner, who is the chief analytics officer. Um, and both of us were kind of Dan was from politics, but both of us were very young and they took a big chance on both of us. And so it's, uh, and obviously it worked out to a certain extent, um, probably a pretty good extent. I think the outcome was pretty reasonable, um, but it was still a pretty huge, I think, risk for everyone involved. And um, it just kind of shows you that these, that the Obama campaign itself has a really good handle on what innovation means. This is the first time I think that any campaign of this size has brought in in-house IT to drive a presence and to drive, you know, basically how the, the mechanistics of how the campaign runs. Yep. Um, when you looked at this, were you, you know, given, you know, this is what we want to accomplish? How did you start architecting <laughs> the solution for Obama 2012? Well, that's that's actually a really good question. It's it's it was it was very difficult. And so, I mean, what kind of how it started was um, Michael Slaby, who I mentioned before, he he kind of. Well, I guess you have to go back, back, back in time. And so you have to go back to 2004, which was the Dean campaign. And so one thing I should say is that I didn't know any of this stuff before I started. I'm very, very much just a kind of regular old engineer type. And I don't, I didn't really think about these things. And I didn't really, I didn't really, it just wasn't really what I was really focusing on. And so at some point, I kind of learned the history of the industry I was coming into. And so that was actually a really kind of fascinating thing to be to kind of have happen where which was you know I'm, I'm from technology and in technology you have a very simple kind of way things work and it's it's like you know you don't have to think about history or how did I why am I here 
you know, what what is going on? And in this world, the reason that I was there had a lot to do with the 2004 campaign with Howard Dean. And so what, what came mm-hmm. out of that was Howard Dean and his campaign really aggressively um, trusted young people, much like myself, to kind of help define and design the technology that they were using. Um, and so they actually were a huge um, rack space consumer. And there's a really funny story about um, by um, the guys who found a rack space where they were just kind of one of the guys was going through their client list. And they were like, well, who's this, who's this guy who's using all these servers? And they were like, well, that's the Dean campaign. And they're like, who? And they, they found out basically that this huge consumer of servers and resources was this campaign. And it was the first time that a campaign had really used technology in a real way. Um, and so that kind of set the baseline. Um, and so since then, everyone who had a campaign had to do a little bit more because all of the competition was doing that. And so they all kind of had to fight a little bit. And um, what ended up happening is, you know, eventually they realized that the distance between each of these years is so great that they really aggressively have to invest in technology. And um, if you look at 2008, um, the iPhone had just been released. Facebook was barely, it, they didn't really have Facebook pages. Like they, the first Facebook page, one of the first ones was the president's. Um, Twitter was released in 2006. Um, and all of the, the strategy behind Facebook and Twitter and the mobile strategy, all that stuff was kind of fake. It was done by, you know, very ad hoc by some intern type person who just kind of took care of it. But that wasn't their primary role, um, you know, and there was some like youth outreach that was done on it, but nothing that was that was aggressively deliberate. Um, and so now if you imagine uh, a campaign that is not focused on Facebook, imagine what you'd say. You'd laugh at them, you know, and so this is just a, a few years later and suddenly our entire world is aggressively different. Everything we think about and do is completely changed because of those three or four things. Um, and so that's just an example of the difference of social innovation that happened in those four years. And so if you can imagine since 2004, it's just been um, almost uh, uh, incommensurable, the difference between the two years or, uh, you know, uh, a very, a huge amount of difference. So um, that kind of is the beginnings, or I guess, a brief, probably rant, uh, rambling history of <laughs> political technology. It's it's funny because it, in some ways it reminds me of that uh, Moneyball movie where where suddenly mm-hmm. they discovered that they could do an analytics on the information that was always there but never seen and yep. you know it, there's there's a lot of sort of various technologies that I see being thrown around here there's there's this talk of DevOps there's talk of big data mm-hmm. there's talk there's talk of analytics APIs and kind of this mashup of all these various parts well yeah and as you know, what? What is there anything in particular the thing that gave you a, uh, an advantage, or is it kind of a you know evolutionary well, step of all the things? It's a lot, and so I actually have used the Moneyball example many times before, and um, because I think it fits very well. The only unfortunate thing about Moneyball is usually in this example I become Google Boy, which I'm just I'm not as excited about for those of you who saw the movie, um, just because I would I'd rather be Billy Bean, um, <laughs> but. Um, you know, the Slavey and those guys, those guys were the ones that really kind of helped define that we needed this stuff. And so they did, they did take a risk and they did do things differently. And there was this kind of um, hilarious, like, okay, we really have to do this. Um, one of the things that we really focused on, and this was hugely important, and this kind of goes to the, to the very top. Um, we knew that if we were going to do this, we had to do it right. And so we knew that we were going to have to 
look at how everyone else does technology. It didn't matter who you were or what you were doing or what kind of tech you were doing, but all of these people who were doing tech, we needed to look at them and say, okay, what, how do you do this normally? What is the thing that we do? And so if that's analytics, how do we do that? If that's, you know, that's how we got really big into DevOps. That's how we started using Amazon Web Services. Um, we looked at ourselves more of a startup, less so a political campaign. And obviously, you know, we can't ignore that. Like, we're obviously a political campaign. We obviously have a president that we are trying to reelect. Um, but we spent a lot of time thinking, okay, so if if I was a startup that theoretically is possibly going to raise a billion dollars, which we didn't know if we were going to do that or not. We hoped we were, of course. Um, how do we how do we go? Um, if we have a, and there's a couple properties that I think we have to talk about to kind of dig a little deeper, which is um, it's time boxed. So we knew that we were going to be done in November. There's n There was nothing that could happen that would make it so that we weren't going to be done. <laughs> which is fun, right? Because well, it's, it's terrifying. I think it's fun now <laughs> where we did it. But at the time, I was like, oh, my God, we are going to die. Um, just because <laughs> you, you just, you just what, like, I mean, you guys, what is, what is your background? You've done software before? Yes. Uh, I, yes. My, my background is actually software infrastructure. So have you ever worked on a project that shipped on time? Very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> because I know I haven't, and I remember I, I remember like uh, there's a couple times I've asked this of like a group of people, and there and one or two people are like, well, yeah, and I'm like, no, you're lying. I don't believe you, because software doesn't ship on time. But what if I told you that you had to, like, if you didn't ship on time, you might as well just go home, because that was the game we were at, and and so that made it where we could not be innovative. We just had to execute. And so if there was a word that was similar to innovation, but just on execution, maybe it's just execution, that's what we had to do. And so it wasn't so much that we invented new ways of doing a campaign as much as we looked at what other people were doing in general with technology and said that. That is what we have to do because we don't have another choice. Um, and it, it largely worked, right? I mean, it, it was there were, we obviously had a lot of missteps. We obviously, you know, could have done things easier in certain ways, and some things were really hard, and some things were really easy. But um, you know, it worked. Our analytics program, ran by Dan Wagner, was incredibly innovative, and you know, allowed us to have instant views of kind of what was happening around the U.S. with polling, with where we should put our people. Um, and this actually goes to something that I drives me a little crazy. We always talk about big data, but I think the big data term comes from when storage was hard. Um, because the data doesn't actually matter. It's how we react to that data, how we take that data and get answers from it. And so one thing that we did is we didn't actually, no one, none of us cared about how big the data was. And oftentimes it, was, it, was, it wasn't that big. Um, it was more how do we get answers that are practical that we can immediately react to? Because if you can't react to it, it doesn't matter. Um, and we had a couple things that, that, that lived in our world. One was if there's not a metric for it, it did not happen. Um, and so that was, we measured everything um, manically, um, both from a performance standpoint. So, you know, I was much more on the website, so we did a lot of performance monitoring. Um, and as well on the, um, you know, on the, how are people working? Like, how are they, at, how are they working together? Um, you know, how are, what is happening in the field, et cetera, et cetera. How do we measure all that stuff as well? So we did a whole bunch of that, and um, that is really, I think, the big benefit that we had is is we knew what was happening around us. So you had massive 
data gathering exercises from, you know, from information the campaign had, information that was coming from different sources. Um, and you use that in amazing ways. I mean, I think a lot has been written about how the campaign analyzed for anything from advertising decisions to um, where to deploy your volunteer bases. Um, when you look back at all of this, um, what do you think were the key things that technology did to give the Obama campaign an advantage? And what are the things that you that you say, hmm. yeah, this was really critical? That's a good question. Um, one of the, I think one of the biggest things that the campaign used technology for is just um, how and where we put people. So you talked a little bit about deploying volunteers. And, you know, an example would be, um, and this was all, it goes back to what I was saying about you have kind of, you're building for one deadline. Um, we aggressively um, built for election day. Um, so a lot of our um, a lot of our tools were you know that was the only day that mattered. Um, no other day really mattered, and so we had this kind of um, need to to make sure that that day worked um, in all ways. So from volunteers, from staffing, and so a lot of this was looking at what was happening in the real physical world and reacting to that. Um, so one of the things we used was this platform called Ushahidi. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ushahidi. Um, it's a event tracking platform. Um, it has a, an amazing story. It came out of um, Kenya when they had a little bit of a political uprising, um, a coup, and they were um, there were some people there, and they basically created this this crisis map, which is kind of like a heat map for events that said, you know, hey, I wouldn't go down the street because there's gangs roaming around and they're beating people up who are trying to go to work or whatever it is. Um, and so the software came out of this kind of strife. Um, we did not expect strife, but we knew that there would be long lines and that people like places would turn off the polls because they wanted to go home or whatever the reason was. We weren't there to make a decision about the reason. All we wanted to make sure of is that the people who who should be eligible to vote had that opportunity. Um, and so we used it. And that's an example of using both data um, to make real decisions and to re react in a very real way. Um, and so this was very cool to see a real-time interaction with data that was happening um, and um, being able to make a decision. Um, now, the question was, what was the most impactful? Um, that's really hard because we had a huge, huge outlay. Um, we had about 300 um, repositories that we deployed on a regular basis. Um, probably 200 of them had weekly releases. Um, this was just all on the front end stuff that kind of the Barack Obama dot com call tools, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very big um, set of applications. Um, so to say which one was the most impactful, how did technology most impact the campaign is a really hard question to to answer. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's OK. You're building you're building a one billion dollar startup in a run of 18 months that, you know, if you, if you put that in perspective, you know, Facebook, you know, generated uh, probably a billion plus uh, in, in funding, but it took them six, seven years to do that. So you're, you're te you know, you're basically trying to build something on par with Facebook in, in the in the run of a few months. Yep. So maybe you can kind of run us through the, the specifics of, of the architecture itself. How do you, how do you build for that kind of scale? Is it an infrastructure as a service? Well, we used, I mean, we, we relied aggressively on AWS. Um, and if there was anything that kind of saved us, it was Amazon. Um, their products 
really a- allowed us to do what we needed to do. I mean, we, we were able to focus on the things that were important. We didn't have to focus on boxes. So um, we didn't, like, we didn't think about things as boxes. Um, we were aggressively automated, um, you know, so we did a lot. Uh, we used Puppet. Um, all of our apps um, could be deployed um, very quickly by our DevOps team. And so we, um, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that. Um, we had a head of DevOps, Scott Vandenplass, who um, is one of the smartest ops people I've ever worked with. Um, and he really, really pushed the team, both the DevOps team engineer and the engineering team, to make sure things were automated. Um, and so how kind of we did this was, um, oh, so our stack was whatever you wanted it to be, <laughs> For the most part, which is a little bit frustrating um, at times as the CTO because you're just like, why would you choose this? Um, but for the most part, um, we that meant the things were in Rails, Python, PHP. We had a small little bit, a tiny bit of Java, a little tiny bit of C, um, and then a, a dabbling of other things, in, um, some Node for some dashboards, and a little bit of Go because I was bored. Um, and we um, that was the platform, and then we just deployed all the things to boxes. Um, on Amazon using Puppet, um, they were how we how our build process worked, which was very quick. Is we compiled everything into Debs, um, so we used the apt um, apt packaging system that comes kind of default with Debian or Ubuntu, um, and that allowed us to build new versions and it would, it would track dependencies and all of that fun stuff. And so we didn't really have to worry about some of the um, kind of problems that you would run into. Um, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, which is we couldn't be we couldn't write our own kind of deploy system. This wasn't that's one thing you do see at like a Facebook or a Twitter is they have a problem where they, they you know like they like Twitter released Murder, which was an amazing deploy system, and. Um, it was very specific to what Twitter needed, and some people use it outside of Twitter. But the big thing is, is we just don't have time to pay attention to that stuff. As much as I would love to be able to do that, we just needed to ship our products. And so if that meant that we used the default package management system that that came with Debian, um, that's what that meant because we knew it worked. We knew that we didn't have to ha- – we're, we're not going to have a problem with it. It's been pretty proven. And so that was kind of the, that was kind of the MO with a lot of this stuff. What works? What is the thing that's going to give me not a nightmare? Mm-hmm. Um, and you gave it a, a, a rather interesting name, Narwhal. I think is is well, that correct? That was that was actually this is an interesting thing. So the so the media loves Narwhal for whatever reason. And I think you know one of the reasons is it's it's it has a great name. That's my plan. So my pro tip here is never have us name things. Um, but the uh, the Narwhal, what Narwhal was, and it was not what anyone thinks it is, <laughs> what Narwhal was is it was purely our API. And so we had a huge API that powered a lot of our apps, and um, Narwhal was um, that API. So much like you look at like a parse.com or you look at any of these kind of sites that have big APIs or a platform, for instance, that's basically what Narwhal was. So um, the biggest impact that – the biggest way you would see Narwhal was if you went to BarackObama.com and you logged in, um, and then you contributed five dollars, and then you went and made some calls. You would use the same username and password. Um, and so what that allowed is that just all these apps were different apps, but it allowed them to share data, share user data, and then collect that data for whatever reasons we needed. Um, one thing that on the data side, the most important data that we had was the user, the the data the users gave us. Um, so all of the users that we had, whether they're you know volunteers or you know 
all the self-reported data. That was the real key. That was the real differentiator that we had that helped us quite a bit with, with solving some of these big problems. I was interested to read about the platform support that you guys drove and the fact that you could even take donations via text message. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that um, was interesting in terms of the, the growing use of mobility associated with this campaign. Um, what kind of things do you think you did differently here than the previous campaign has done in terms of delivery of engagement points for your, your electorate? Well, can you ask that slightly different? I'm not sure I quite understand what you, what you mean by delivery of engagement points. Well, if you if you think about it from a standpoint of, of uh, 2008, you know, people got a lot of emails from BarackObama.com. Yeah. Um, this time around, you engaged through Twitter, you engaged through Facebook, mm -hmm. you engaged through text, message, et cetera, and you didn't just do that to share information. You also engaged um, for action and, and f funding. Um, what kind of back-end technologies helped you drive that engine, I guess, is the mm. question that I have. Hmm. You know, I don't know if it actually was a back-end technology as much as it was just the absolute need for us to be very, very good at social. Um, and the reason why that is is users these days, like if, if you give them a bad experience, they take it to Twitter. Um, and so mm -hmm. it used to be in 2008 that, you know, some kind of hippie types probably like ourselves would, would you know, complain on Twitter. Um, but nowadays, it, a lot of people are, are participating this way. And if, if you're not working it in a way that's very positive, um, you have a, what essentially is a crisis on your hands. Um, and so we, we knew that we had to engage these people on their own turf, and part of that was Twitter, um, you know. And, and also, <clears throat> campaigns are full of just wonderful young people who are just these amazing leaders. And so this is also their native ground, you know. It's, you know, it's my native ground as well. And so, you know, I don't believe in this term digital native because I think we're all at this point digital. Um, but I think these people are early adopters. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's very it's very easy for us to think, oh, yeah, of course we'd use Twitter. Um, I don't know if there's any technology that really specifically helped us as much as, um, as, much as we were able to really focus on kind of, I'm trying to think how to best say this, um, by using an API to drive a lot, of our, a lot of our development, we were able to not have to worry about the bullshit and just, and just do the fun stuff. So if we wanted to say, let's say, wanted to take money through text messages, we didn't necessarily have to um, aggressively rebuild everything. We just, because it was API, we just used something like Twilio or, or you know, or we had a short code, so we used that short code provider, but we could have used Twilio to um, just hit our API when a certain parameters were met, and then we were able to charge money because we spent a lot of time unifying accounts, unifying data, unifying systems, and then um, everyone that we worked with, very like all the engineers, really understood how APIs worked. And so that was the whole plan. That was our dream, and it worked. Um, that was a surprise that it worked. Like, that wasn't, you know, we were we were probably just as surprised as everyone else, but... You know, you've, you've been quoted as saying APIs equals freedom. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, this goes. This is exactly on that same topic, which is we had no idea what we needed to build. So when I started, we had these very, very, very high-level ideas, which were like, okay, we need to build a, a tool that does team, that helps the teams manage, like work together. 
right? And we need this to be hierarchical, and it needs to do these five things. So we knew that. But we had no idea what exactly that would mean or how it would look or, you know, what the hierarchy would be or any of these other things that kind of the, nu- the nuances of that. And so since we didn't know any of that, um, we had to kind of build it in such a way that – or build our platform in such a way that that stuff didn't matter, that, that knowing the details of what we were building um, – would matter later during implementation, but we could be really open about it. And so we really invested early in this in this idea of, a, of an API. And so, you know, if you think of it as a foundation or a platform, um, what it did is it really just opened our doors so that we could do whatever we wanted. Um, a couple examples of this is we had a really cool SMS app towards the end of the campaign that we sent a lot of SMSs at. We had a bunch of really neat apps that um, for mobile that helped do mobile organizing, um, and it was also really funny to see how people like these. Some people were like, this is the worst app in the world. And then, you know, two minutes later, you talk to someone that said, this saved me because I'm really bad at, I have really bad handwriting or whatever, you know, whatever it is. So there's so many people that really use them differently because your user base is so big. Um, it was, it was dauntingly big. Um, so it was, it was, uh, the APIs allowed us to really not have to worry about what the right answer was. That's probably an easier way to say it. We could we could iterate, we could test relatively inexpensively, and we could focus on the right things and make sure that the work we're doing is the right work. Um, and that's the, that's the game of, of campaigns. It's all about resources. You, you didn't so, really create soft, software per se. You, what you sounds like you created was was a platform, a, a political platform in terms of all the components that you needed that were made accessible through this kind of web-based. Uh, you know, nervous system, which I guess you, you yep. refer to as your API. It's, it's really, it's actually yep. quite interesting. You really took that kind of modern approach to a, API-centric development and applied it to yep. a political campaign. That's exactly what we did. And I mean, we, we knew it was going to be hard and we knew it needed to scale. And, you know, we had all these kind of worries about it. I remember uh, I was <laughs> talking with some good friends about it who, you know, spent some time at Facebook and spent some time at TypePad and all these kind of fun, famous um startups and we were telling them this and, and the one one of my good friends had this look of horror on his face and i was like oh no what's happening he's like dude this is not gonna work and i was like well what's why like what's the problem tell just tell it to me straight and this is pretty early this is like uh probably um august or september 2011 he's like well we tried this at you know facebook or at typepad or whatever and and what we found is it works really well for the first like two years but after that it just is such a pain to maintain and I was like, two years? He's like, yeah. And I was like, done. I am still in. We're still good. Because we knew that we needed it to last for 18 months. We we didn't need it to last for four years. We didn't need it to last for, you know, anything past that. And, um, you know, our goal was to reelect the president. Our goal was not to create software that would, you know, help support campaigns forever. Although if that was a side effect, that would be really great because they need it. But that wasn't our stated goal. And so we just knew that if it worked for 18 months, we were golden. You know, you talked about scale and the need um, for reliability at a, at a scale that is hard to fathom for a lot of people. Um, you did game days. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Um, yeah, and this actually came from a friend of ours, um, um, Mark, who's the VP of engineering over at Etsy. Um, he, We had drinks with him, a friend, my, my buddy Dylan and I, who I'm also starting this company with, um, he was a, the 
director of engineering on the campaign, um, also at Threadless. And so we were we were kind of talking about like you know, and we actually approached it from a what's a way we can get some of the engineers involved in kind of celebrating this like what we're doing. And it wasn't so much that we <coughs> excuse me that they weren't celebrating. It was just we just wanted to make sure that they didn't burn out. So this is a question about burnout because the campaign's so crazy. We knew that people were going to be bummed about stuff, and we didn't want them to be bummed. And so we were just like, how do we make sure these guys are excited? And so Mark was like, look, this is one thing that we do. We basically go through and test all of our assumptions about our technology stack in a in a really uh, real way by running what amounts to tabletop exercises, but we call them game days. And so this really resonated with us, both because we wanted to have something that was um, that survived. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, earlier in the campaign, I had an opportunity to go see um, the space shuttle, the last launch of the space shuttle. And I was walking around and there was this kind of um, this display about uh, fail safety. And they talked a lot about how what fail safe meant. And um, I found this fascinating because in technology and software, we always talk about uptime. We talk about all these things that are kind of similar to fail safety, but we don't talk about how that stuff impacts the user. And the the important thing about fail safety um, is that the people on the plane or the people on the spaceship, they don't die. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so we started to think about, you know, this idea of game day, what you're really doing is you're really, there's a couple things that are coupled with this. You're really thinking about how is the user impacted during an error or catastrophe. Um, And so we, what we tested for was we tested how to make sure the users were not impacted, how to make sure that what we're doing, that the users may not actually realize that there's a catastrophe happening, that they just think it's, you know, they're like, oh, suddenly there's not a map. I guess we didn't need that anyway. Um, you know, and, and how do we make sure, oh, well, I can't log in now. Or you degrade the various things, but it's not necessarily, you don't harm them. Um, I think the most harmful thing for any user at any time is when they go to a website and it says like 500 server error or it says 404 mm-hmm. and it's very generic. And you see this a lot with frameworks. Whenever frameworks get popular, the, the framework error page is like the most popular page on the Internet. And so you see that with Rails, right, um, where the Rails error page is super popular. But it's what we, what we want to do is we wanted to avoid all instances of that. We didn't want any of our users to ever have to experience that kind of failure. Um, and so we spent a whole lot of time making sure that all of our applications survived. And how we did that is we did these things called game days. Um, And what it was is it was just a test in um, a kind of very similar infrastructure as live, um, as our live infrastructure. So because we used Amazon, we just lit up another version. um, And we just said, okay, what happens when you take away the database? Um, And turns out that's not usually, that doesn't usually work. You can't just take away the database. And we just did that over and over again for every single type of app, for every single part of our infrastructure. Um, And the first time we did it, um, Dylan created this menu of kind of the plan, the game day plan. And he was like, okay, so this is what we're going to do. First thing we're going to do is we're going to kill the database. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to kill the queues. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to see what happens when, um, you know, like DNS breaks. Um, And um, what ended up happening with this is – 
the first thing Dylan did is he actually did it all backwards. He didn't tell anyone the order because he's like, errors don't happen on a menu. Um, and the second mm-hmm. thing is, is, is we found that all of our assumptions of what would break, because we, you know, everyone knows the, the weaknesses for their organization, but the, what we thought would break actually didn't break. And we, we noticed some really big problems. And so, um, we were able to kind of fix some of these really big problems. Like, you know, the first app that actually had a big problem was our login provider. Um, and if that would have gone down, we would have been pretty SOL for a lot of various other things as well. And so we were very, very lucky that that was the first thing that we caught. Um, and so that's, it's, it's those type of things that really helped us is, is like practicing failure. And so I talk about this a lot as well, which is like we spent a lot of time really investing in in practicing failing so that we would be good at it because we the assumption was not that we wouldn't fail i think people say well we don't go down and i think that's bullshit what our assumption was what when we do go down how do we make sure the users still have a good experience and so it's not if it's when and it's not how it's it's because you just are like all the ways because <laughs> everything always breaks um, and so what we ended up creating was this idea of a run book where um, at the end you know in on election day, um, we had this book that you could look at no matter what happened. You could look at it and you could say, okay, um, the database is down for, you know, our, our um, voter protection app. Well, that's on page 30. You open page 30 and it tells you how to fix it. And you just click the, you know, you type that command in and there it's fixed. So that was something that we spent a lot of time building and it saved, it saved our ass a bunch of times because we didn't have to, we didn't have to learn how to fix that thing when it, when it happened, we already knew what the problem was. Um, and so right after we did the first one of these, like the very first day, um, I mean, we're talking like everyone had gone home for this really hard Sunday. And then the next day, Amazon had an outage on their um, east um, data center, east region. And um, our engineers were like, dude, I thought we ran through all these scenarios. Of, you know, why are we doing this again? And we were like, actually, this seems real. And so they were like, oh. And so then they, they, they like, we barely moved and um, everything was fine. We had no downtime when, you know, Reddit and Quora and all these kind of big sites that rely on Amazon as well had downtime. Um, and so that was just purely because we kind of knew how to react in all of the scenarios that we thought really interesting. It's kind of a graceful, graceful failure methodology. You know, I, I, we're, we're running a little bit low, low on time here, but I had a couple, one, one more question. You know, this is a little out in left field here a bit. You know, you, you certainly have become kind of the, uh, the rock star of the IT world since November, to, you know, and you probably have your pick of things to do. There's been some talk that, that uh, you, your name was being thrown around for sort of the, the CIO position of the U.S. federal government, um, amongst other things. Um, <laughs> So, so what 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 is next for you? You know, what, where do you go from from you know building and and successfully deploying the the one of the largest campaigns on the planet to you know what what's next? Well, I mean, it's um it's actually very simple. Um, so I have a small company that um, I started with with my good buddy Dylan. We're employing a couple of our other friends that we're really excited to work with, and it's um right now we're focused on um, e-commerce. And so, what does commerce mean? It's something that we have a background and we've done for a really long time and so it's kind of like you know how does that manifest itself and you know what does it mean and what do we you know what does uh what is the future of e-commerce um and so we're very early and we're trying to be very deliberate about what kind of what we're building and why we're building it and um 
it's it's been a lot of fun, um, but it's it's way harder, you know, because you know the campaign we came in there and it was like we just had to execute. Um, we didn't have to like you know invent, and starting from zero is much different than starting from like point zero zero one, for instance. Well, you, mm-hmm. you know, Al Gore is a venture capitalist in the tech space. You you, you could probably uh, pull that uh, string pretty easily these days, I would imagine. <laughs> That's probably true. I actually, I, I um, it'd be fun to talk to him about it, wouldn't it? You think Kleiner Perkins, I think, is, is where he is these days. Or is he? One That's of, amazing. One of his many, yeah, I think he's like on the board over there as well as on Apple and a variety of other things. Yeah, I, certainly an interesting story you have. It's it's actually spectacular. I'm 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 quite blown away by the, what you've been able to accomplish. It's quite impressive. Yeah, it's well, a real tough case um, for the the next generation of compute. And and you bring some of the things that that uh, a lot of folks talk about theoretically to life in application. So um, a very cool story, and and thank you for spending the time sharing it with us today. No um, problem. Thanks Harper, for having me. If folks who are listening want to connect with you, is there a good way to do that? Well, um, the easiest way is my website, which my email address is all over that, and that's harperreed.com. Um, but I'm also very accessible on Twitter, um, and so I'd love to hear from everyone on Twitter. Um, and I'm just Harper on Twitter. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. And uh, that wraps another edition of Digital Nibbles. Um, Ruv, do you know who we're going to be on with next time? It's some exciting folks. Yeah, yeah we, well, we have uh, Will Young, who's the director of Zappos Labs. I'm, I'm not familiar with Zappos Labs, but I am familiar with Sam Carrington, who's actually an old pal of mine. We, we, we created Cloud Camp together about five years ago, so it'll be good to chat with him and see what he's up to. Also, I will be at the Cloud Connect conference in Santa Clara, so uh, I'll have an inside scoop on the latest happenings in the world of cloud, so it should be an interesting show. Fantastic. Well, I will catch up with you in a couple weeks. And again, Harper, thanks for being on the program today. That wraps another edition of Digital Nipples. Digital Nipples.